evening, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and in the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, and that might help. Uh, there we go. Um, I invite you to keep your Bibles open. We'll be looking back at that passage uh, throughout our time together this morning. I wanted to uh, add my welcome to Pastor Marshall. It's so great to have um, so many people here, so many new faces. Uh, perhaps your uh, friends and family of the people who got baptized and confirmed today. That's so a warm welcome to you. A warm welcome to you if you're uh, coming to church because it's Easter and it's the thing that you do. Welcome to you. Welcome to our regulars. Uh, so, so very glad to have you here. Well, uh, last year, there was a report that was published from the journal, uh, the Royal Society of Open Science, and they came to a conclusion of a rigorous study that looked over 30 years of data. The topic of that study? Pop music. They studied pop music. Now, what did they find? Uh, Well, after studying over 500,000 songs released in the UK over a period from 1985 right up to 2015 by examining uh, what they call acoustic categories of music and the moods that describe those sounds. One of the key conclusions they came to was that there was 
a downward sonic trend in happiness. There was a downward trend in happiness and, at the same time, an increase in sadness. Like, there were chirpy bands back in 95 by the names of Wham! Right? And they moved gradually to moody artists such as Sam Smith. Right? As a side note, the song Stay With Me rated among songs with the lowest happiest happiness index of all time. Right? Fascinating, right? Now, I wonder, I wonder whether that, those conclusions, they're true of your experience of music. Right? Have the songs that you've been hearing on the radio, have they been, as just generally, more and more sad? The Associated Press, uh, who, who uh, posted this up that I found, also said that there have been other studies in pop music that didn't focus so much on the music, uh, but focused on the lyrics instead. And they found also, they concluded also, that the use of positive emotions have declined, but at the same time, indicators of loneliness and social isolation have increased. Perhaps, though, these findings hardly surprise us. Even when we look beyond the music industry, it doesn't take very long to see the brokenness and the lack of hope in our world. In Australia alone, rates of mental illness, depression, suicide, they've all been on the up. Uh, the Black Dog Institute, a research institute in Sydney, released statistics, a statistics sheet about some of the issues that it researches. Right? It, it, in, in this uh, statistics sheet, it said that one in five Australians aged between 16 to 85 experience mental illness. Every day, at least six Australians die from suicide and a further 30 people attempt to take their own life. Depression is the number one cause of non-fatal disability in Australia. Now, when we're confronted with that, it can all feel rather hopeless, can't it? The world we live in has always needed hope, but perhaps in our lifetime, despite living longer, and in general, much wealthier than, our, than the generations before us, it seems that we need hope more than ever before. And so as we come to Easter Sunday, as we celebrate the risen Lord Jesus, I want to invite you to come. I want, you to invite, I want to invite you to come and see the hope that comes from an empty tomb. The empty tomb of Jesus. Now, just to give us a bit of a roadmap, we're going to look briefly, firstly, at the concept of hope. Then we're going to look into our first point, that we all need hope. And then we're going to go to a second point. We're going to explore some of the ways that the empty tomb offers a hope that's unique. So that's a bit of a roadmap. If you want to follow along, you'll be on the screen behind me. But uh, would you pray with me uh, as we look at this? Father God, we just thank, thank you for this time that we have to uh, celebrate the hope that Easter gives. Father, I pray that perhaps for some of us, um, uh, this might be really, really good news, perhaps even for the first time. Father, we pray that we would be confronted uh, with the uh, reality of Jesus' resurrection, but also confronted that our lives uh, don't have to be ever the same because of it. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, friends, as we begin, what do we mean? What do we mean when we speak about hope or the concept of hope? What do we mean? Now, if we break it down, I think when we speak about hope, it usually, uh, usually involves two separate but related parts, right? Firstly, the first part, when we talk about hope, it's, uh, it's whatever we expect 
to fulfill our desires. Whatever we expect to fulfill our desires. The Oxford Dictionary defines hope as a feeling of expectation and desire for a particular thing to happen, right? And so when we move beyond, you know, superficial hopes, such as, the, such as what we hope the weather will be tomorrow on our public holiday, right? deep within us, deep within us are hopes that are pretty core to who we are, right? Those things are core. They're things that we expect and are sure will satisfy our deepest needs. See, that's the first part of hope. It involves deep desires. It involves expectations. But there's a second part to hope and the concept of hope, and that is, uh, while it talks about expectations and desires, it's also yet to happen. Right? Hope is future-based. See, Even though we have strong expectations that if and when we get there, we will be satisfied and our desires will be met, because it happen, hasn't happened yet, it's still our hope. Right? It's future-based. And so having set up that it's all about desires and expectations and fulfillment that comes from that, having set up that it's uh, in our future, uh, I want you to imagine this hypothetical scenario. Yeah? Imagine it with me. So there are two people. There are two people that are given the exact same job. Right? Uh, they're, they're placed in identical rooms with identical conditions, uh, with identical temperature, lighting, and they're given the same task. Right? They're to hammer a nail into a piece of wood and then pass it on to somebody who takes it away. That's their job. That's, that's what they do every day, every week. But person A gets an annual income of $1,000 and person B gets an annual income of $10 million. Now, uh, both of them, they're working, they're working, and during the day, they take their lunch break and they come to the lunchroom and person A person says to person B, isn't this a terrible job? It's tedious, it's boring, isn't it hard to do? What would person B reply? No, actually, I'm pretty looking forward. I'm, I'm looking forward to the year. It looks pretty good to me. I, I even I can I even sing when I hammer the nail into the wood. See, what's the difference? What's going on? See, they have identical circumstances. They interpret though and experience those identical circumstances really radically different because of their expectations of the future. Their hopes are different, in other words. The reason I gave this hypothetical situation isn't to say that we all need good income, even though that's great, but to show that there is a third part to hope. It's not just about desires and expectations. It's not just that it's future-based, but that our hopes for the future radically control how we experience the present. Make sense? Our hope for the future radically controls how we experience the here and now. You see, friends, to put it another way, and I think deep down we all suspect this, we all need hope. We all in our day-to-day lives are unavoidably hope-based. We all have or set expectations in some way for our future and live in light of it. And so the question for us isn't whether we uh, hope or don't hope. The question is, what do we put our hope in? What have you placed your hope in? Now, before we get to that question specifically, I want to make really clear that I believe that there are many, many, many legitimate hopes that people can have in their lives and they can live for. There are many, many legitimate hopes. So what you're not going to hear me say uh, this morning is that there's only one legitimate hope, being Christianity. I'm not going to say that. There are many ways that we can set hopes and live in light of those things. But... 
But having said that, I do want to suggest that today as we think about where we place our hopes, like many things, there's a spectrum. There are hopes that are, on the one hand, shaky, shakier, right? Um, And there are hopes that are stronger and less likely to fall on itself. See, while there are many, many ways to hope and live, I want us to question today whether the hopes we have and live in light of lean more towards being shaky or more towards being strong. To help us with that, I'm going to give us a couple of examples from this spectrum of shakier and stronger of hope, by telling you stories from two marginalized groups in history. We're going to look at the Jews in World War II who were exposed to death camps. And then we're going to look at the African community during the time of slavery. So we're going to first look at the Jews, um, the Jews in, in World War II. Um, let's go back. Uh, Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was an Austrian Jewish psychiatrist, right? And he was a survivor of the Holocaust and the death camps. Now, while in the death camps, he noticed his fellow Jews responded uh, quite differently from each other. There were some who lost hope. They curled up, they gave up, and they eventually died. There were others who gave up their hope, uh, but instead of curling up and giving up and, 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 and just leaving it there, they decided to side with the enemy. And there were still others who, in the face of all this, uh, kept hope and endured. And, and Frankel, as a psychiatrist, couldn't work out why this was the case. Right? And so after World War II, he wrote uh, some books where he came to a conclusion. So what was the conclusion? He said that if somebody's hopes were placed totally, completely, in things from this world, if that's where they drew meaning in life, things like material things, things like possessions, accomplishments, status, even family, what would happen is the death camp completely took those things away. The death camp stripped you of all your possessions, all your assets, all your achievements, all your status. It took away those relationships that were dearest to you. See, if somebody's hope was based completely on those things, Frankl observed, then they likely lost all hope, lost all meaning, curled up and died, or they gave up but changed their allegiances to get some of that back again. Now, obviously, that's an extreme case in history. But Frankel applies uh, that same principle to all people as well. See, he makes the point that if our hopes are completely in things in this world, then suffering in any form can and will take that away from you. You name it, right? Relational betrayal, financial difficulty, sickness that might enter your life or a life of a loved one. Things that are beyond our control, things like the economy, things like war. Frankl argues that if our hopes are completely in the things of this world, we will be unable to bear it if our hopes, if those things are taken from us. From suffering. Those forms of suffering, they act like um, kind of like mini death camps in a way. See, Frankl, in contrast, he thinks about one man in particular who endured the death camps. Um, this man survived on a belief that uh, is kind of funny. Uh, his wife in heaven was looking at him. 
He didn't want to give up hope because he didn't want to let her down. This was a hope for this particular man that went beyond our world, again legitimate, and whether we can, we can argue whether it's believable or whether it's likely, I still think it's quite shaky, that particular hope. The fact remains that the death camps couldn't take that hope away from him. And it gave that man the strength to press on. See, friends, as we come back to Easter, I want to suggest that similarly, if our hopes are based on things that are completely in things of this world, if they're based completely in things of this world, those things, while legitimate, are more shaky. Why? Because if our hopes are based completely in this world, it means that the world can also completely take it from you. So they're the Jews. What about the African community during times of slavery? Um, Historians look back at the African community in times of slavery and consistently talk about how they were generally a really, really hopeful people. Now, what did they place their hope in? Their hopes lay with their future, with God. That was their hope. Now, I know I'm starting to talk about God, but don't switch off for a sec. But Because what was it that their belief and hope in God offered them in their time of difficulty and slavery and the conditions that came from that? What did it give them? Here are a few things that that hope gave them. That hope gave them an objective measure to know that the behavior and the treatment of their masters was wrong. Even though the culture around them was saying that it was all good and supportive of it. Their hope told them that even though their conditions were unlikely to change, they weren't going to suddenly come out of slavery overnight, their hope in God gave them the belief that God would enact justice, that the wrongs of their masters would be, in the end, made right. See, their hope in God also meant that they believed in personal immortality, that they would ultimately be reunited with their loved ones, and with their God forever. Um, Howard Thurman, an American, African-American scholar, famously said this of, of the African um, community. Their faith taught a people how to ride high in life. To look squarely in the face those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope. And to use those facts as a raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that the environment, with all its cruelty, couldn't crush. I know for many of you right now, you might be going, well, that, you know, that's great for them. But that's hardly believable. And I'll come back to whether it's believable or not in a little bit. But for the moment, let's put aside whether that's believable or not and just appreciate how, how deep that hope is. Friends, even in slavery and immense suffering, the hope that they had gave them the resources to endure. Isn't that the type of strong hope that we all want? If we look deep inside ourselves, don't we also want a hope that is unshakable and helps us like that? C.S. Lewis captures this desire really well. Um, You might know him as the famous author of the Chronicle of Narnia series. Uh, During World War II, he gave a series of radio uh, broadcasts that were later transformed into a book Uh, that became a classical piece of literature in the 20th century. And in it, there's a chapter called Hope. And he writes this. This is going to be a little bit long, but it's worth following. Um, Most people, Lewis writes, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, 
would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longing which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everybody knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent. Chemistry may have been a really interesting job, but something has evaded us. It's a long quote, but uh, did you catch that? See, Lewis, in that, in that quote, captures, I think, what the African slaves figured out and held so tightly to. And Lewis captures, to a lesser shaky extent, what the Jewish man believed and his wife looking at him in heaven in the death camp. What is it that he captures? He argues that deep down within us, deep, deep down, we need a hope that is beyond our world. A hope that is otherworldly. Because hopes that are based completely in this world, as I said earlier, either don't satisfy or even when they do, satisfy temporarily. Because when, they, when we feel they are not enough, it's over or it can be taken from us. Maybe you've experienced that in your own lives. So today, and we're coming to the end of our first point, I want to invite you to, invi- invite you to what I think is the strongest most functional hope that is on offer to us. I want to invite you to a hope that is not shallow, it's not shaky. And this hope is deeply connected to the message of Easter. And that is the title of our talk today. On your outlines, the hope from an empty tomb. The hope from the empty tomb of Jesus. So we're at our second point. The unique hope the empty tomb offers. So we're going to look at the passage in Luke today. Um, And from the biographical account from the historian, Luke, I believe we see a couple of reasons why the hope of the empty tomb or the resurrection of Jesus offers such a hope, strong hope, and offers it uniquely. Um, The first um, reason why the hope of the empty tomb is unique, I think, is that it's believable. It's believable. It's rational. It's intellectually credible, which... I know is a pretty big claim in 21st century Sydney, right? Uh, but as we look at our first part of the, the reading that Wendy read out for us today, we saw two visits to the empty tomb. Uh, the first visit was by a group of women, right? Who, who Luke names, we see in verse 10, there's, there's, there's Mary Magdalene, there's Joanna, there's Mary, the mother of James, and there are others, right? There's this group. Now what happens? Well, we read that when they first enter the tomb, after seeing the stone had been rolled away, and the fact that there was no body inside, uh, things didn't immediately click for these women. It wasn't like they suddenly went, oh, Jesus must be alive. Jesus is resurrected. They didn't do that. It, it didn't come to them like that. Instead, what do we see? What's their reaction? We see it in verse 4. Have a look. They were wondering about this, we see. They were wondering about this. Now, the word in the ancient language that is translated wondering captures that the women were doing not just wondering, they weren't just wondering, 
the women were confused. They were, they were at a loss. They were, they were doubting. They were uncertain, which is fair enough. The body's not there anymore, right? Even Peter, our second visitor to the empty tomb, in verse 12, we are told, also wonders to himself what just happened. So you can probably imagine that for both women, both the group of women and for Peter, as they walk into the empty tomb for the very first time, their brains are ticking over. And they're going, what could explain this? How does this make sense? See, both the women and Peter were looking for evidence. They were looking for hard evidence. They didn't immediately believe that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. They needed an explanation that fit with everything that they were seeing. They needed evidence. Now, we might think that uh, people living in the first century, ancient people, you know, maybe they're more gullible. They believed in stuff like miracles. And so the fact was that, the fact was, though, that people in the first century needed just as much evidence that someone rose from the grave as we might today. Uh, Just to give you a bit of context, uh, the classical Greco-Roman world was broadly divided into two ways of thinking about life after death. Right? There were those that may have wanted a new body after death, but knew it wasn't possible. Right? They're just like, okay, that's not happening. Uh, the other group uh, agreed with uh, Plato, who you may have heard of, um, who believed that being disembodied, that is, without a body, um, is actually better than having a physical body. And so for the, the ancient world, in, in Greco-Roman world, generally, physical resurrection is not even an option. It's not, it's not even possible. It's not, it's, it's not even something that can enter somebody's mind. Okay, so if it's, not, if it's not the case for the classical Greco-Roman world, what about for the Jews? Was it an option for the Jews? Now, there were a group of Jews um, who agreed with the classical Greco-Roman world that they believed that there was no such thing as a physical resurrection. We see them mentioned a few times in the Bible. They're called the Sadducees. Uh, but for the most part... Uh, First century Jews, although they believed in a bodily erection, believed that it would be at the end of time. When God would judge the world and remake the world and physically raise the righteous at the end though, right? And so for one man to be raised, not at the end of history but right in the middle, was not an option for them either. To believe that would be blasphemy. To believe that would be heresy. To believe that Jesus rose from the dead would be a complete rejection of everything they knew and believed in their world and in their culture. And so that's a bit of context just to say that the ancient world needed just as much evidence as we do. Which, as we come back to Luke, kind of gives us some color to understanding the passage. See, who's there? See, Jesus died on the cross on Friday. It's now Sunday. It's three days. Who's there to see Jesus and to visit the tomb? It's not Jesus' closest followers, is it? It's not his disciples, but it's a group of women. See, nobody from Jesus' closest, most intimate group of followers thought it'd be worthwhile to go to the tomb and check out whether they thought Jesus might be alive. They're not there. They're not even in the picture. Even though Jesus told them many times that he would rise. Which means for them, in their heads, they firmly believed that Jesus was still dead. Maybe they just thought that they backed the wrong horse to be king. What about the group of women? What are they doing there? Well, what are they holding? They're holding expensive spices and perfume, which was used to anoint a dead body, to mask the smell of its decay. And so 
everybody, his disciples, thought that Jesus was still dead. Nobody was anticipating a resurrection. And yet, and yet, at the end of this chapter, in chap- at the end of chapter 24, in verse 22, we see a risen Jesus and we see him being worshipped. See, almost overnight, these followers' perception on whether Jesus was dead or alive radically changed. And it wasn't just their perception. Their lives radically changed too. They dedicated their lives to telling and showing this to the point that within a few generations, even at the cost of their own lives and social standing, this faith spread throughout all the known world and transformed the Roman Empire. Now, how do you explain that? Well, the Bible gives, the, gives us, I think, the answer. The fact that Jesus rose. The fact that Jesus appeared to them. The fact that Jesus spoke to them and that they couldn't do anything but accept that. And that meant, because it was so confronting, they had to give up everything they previously knew and had held to. See, we're all familiar with facts and how they can sometimes be really stubborn. Right? Facts can be stubborn, can't they? Once you've got a really big fact that's in the room, you can't disregard it. It forces us to change what we believe to be true. Now, there are many threads of evidence for Jesus' resurrection. We've only looked at one. And collectively, they weave together to give weight to the resurrection of Jesus. A collection of evidence that together is weightier compared to the evidence of many events in ancient history that we take for granted to be true. See, friends, the hope of the empty tomb is believable. And so I want to ask you, would you look into it? See, if you remove for a moment the assumption that miracles like a resurrection just can't happen, it can't happen. The empty tomb is by far the best best explanation for what happened to Jesus' body. Resurrection is by far the best explanation to what happened to Jesus' body. I really appreciate how one Japanese writer puts it. It's not going to be on the screens, but he says this. If we don't believe in the resurrection, if we don't believe it, we will be forced to believe that what did hit the disciples was some other amazing event, different in kind, yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity. See, what he's saying is even if we don't believe the resurrection... The fact that it was just as inconceivable for first century people as it is for us means that we have to be at least willing to concede that there was something just as amazing, just as transformative, just as stubbornly and factually paradigm-shifting to cause people to give up everything they knew and held to. And if you're willing to come to that conclusion, well, I, I think that's just as great of a leap of faith as what the Bible gives through first-person testimony, as a solution, the resurrection. The hope from the empty tomb is believable, is, is, that, is, is my point. But it's not just believable, it's beautiful. Um, why is it beautiful? Why is the hope of the empty tomb uh, beautiful? Three reasons, and we'll look at them fairly quickly. It's beautiful because it removes the ultimate sting. The hope of the empty tomb is beautiful because it's personal. And the hope of the empty tomb is beautiful because it's certain. Right? It removes the ultimate thing. It's personal. It's certain. Um, but firstly, uh, because it removes the ultimate thing. See, right at the beginning, we talked about hope as something that's in the future. 
Something that we strongly desire and expect will fulfill that then shapes um, our today. See, when we talk about our futures, however, there was nothing more final in our future than the end of our lives, right? So how does the end of our lives impact our present? See, if you go with popular belief that at the end of our lives there is nothing more, that, that means today, logically, should be, it should be all about this life. Today, logically, it should all be about maximizing this life and believing that there's nothing to fear after death. After all, if there's nothing more, why worry? Another way to think about the end of our lives is that maybe there's a reincarnation of sorts, or maybe some form of, you know, becoming a part of the universe, the whole circle of life thing in Lion King. If that's the case, then what should our lives be about now? Well, it should be about you know, doing good to make sure we get the best possible reincarnation. Or, or perhaps, uh, not, we don't need to fear anything because what we're just going to end up being is we're going to be part of the all soul. We're going to become soil for a new crop. There's nothing to fear. But if we think a little more, and if we look within ourselves again, if we truly express how we feel about death, we know that there's something wrong with it, that there is something to fear, that we can't just dismiss it, that there is a sting of death. Just like we know that violence is inevitable because of evolution and natural selection, it doesn't stop us from escaping that feeling that there's something wrong with violence. See, a popular philosopher wrote about a seven-year-old boy who lost his cousin, uh, uh, who was three at the time, and he asked his mum, uh, where's my cousin, mum? Now, mum didn't believe in God, didn't believe in any afterlife, and so uh, she gave an answer in line with what she believed. She told us on this, uh, son, your cousin, your cousin has gone back to the earth from which we all come. Death, death is a natural part of the cycle of life. And so when you see the earth spring new flowers next year, you can know that it is your cousin's life fertilizing those flowers. Kind of beautiful on one level. But how does the boy respond? The boy screams. And he yells, I don't want him to be fertilizer. And he runs away in tears. See, his response, and perhaps our response, when we feel how wrong death is, even though our brains say otherwise, is captured quite brutally by um, Carl Jung. He writes this, Death is indeed a fearful piece of brutality. There is no sense pretending otherwise. It is brutal not only as a physical event, but far more so psychically. So what happens in death is a human being is torn away from us. And what remains is the icy stillness of death. There no longer exists any hope of a relationship, for all the bridges have been smashed at one blow. The sting of death is not sufficiently dealt with at the depths of who we are by many of our popular beliefs today. But friends, if the tomb really is empty, if Jesus really is alive, what that tells us is that death really does not need to be the end. Just as death was not the end for Jesus, death does not need to be the end for you and for me. 
There is life beyond the grave. And if that's true, that's beautiful news. Why? Well, just super quickly, one way it's beautiful news is because everything we do now, today, that promotes life, that preserves life, that builds life, things that are good, things that are selfless, things that are for our society, they're not ends in themselves. It brings a deeper meaning for doing good and promoting life. You see, if death isn't the end, those good things won't stop for us when we die. And what about for those people who receive those good things? That doesn't have to be the end for them either when they die. It means we can give our present to life giving things completely. Because death isn't the end. But the flip side is also true. See, if, if death isn't the end, if Jesus' tomb is empty because he's risen, it means that our lives, if they're one of hardship, if our lives are one of difficulty, if our lives are one of suffering and grief, if death isn't the end, if there's life to come, then we're, we can bearably endure our present life better. Because we know that this isn't all life will be. Death does not need to be the end. Its sting is dealt with. But secondly, uh, the hope of the empty tomb is beautiful because it's personal. Right? Let's reread the passage from Luke 24. We're going to look from verse 36. Verse 36 of Luke 24. If you've got it in front of you, have a read with me. Verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It is I myself. Touch and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broad fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. The hope, the hope goes further than simply that death is not the end. What type of life do we get a hint of from this passage? Right, the future, according to Jesus, is that the resurrection will be personal. It will be personal. And, and that's not symbolic. It's not symbolism. When we read this, Luke, the writer, doesn't want us to come to the conclusion that somehow we're meant to see that this collective group in this home all imagined Jesus eating some barramundi with them and metaphorically draw meaning from it. That's not what Luke's trying to do. What we're meant to see is that the empty tomb means that Jesus is still a person, which includes all aspects of being a person. It means he's physical. It means he's relational. It means he wants to eat like I do right now. Right? Jesus says, it is I myself. It's myself. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It's me. See, friends, just like in agriculture where the first harvest of fruit tells you what the rest of the crop's going to look like, Jesus' life after death shows us what our lives after death ultimately will look like. We too will be physical. We will be able to relate and love. That doesn't have to end. We will be able to eat. All the things that can be enjoyed from our personal and physical lives now can also be enjoyed until its fullest. Our future will be one that includes personal relationships and personal love. And even more amazingly, it tells us that God desires to give himself to us, personally relate with us and relate with others. See, so why is this beautiful news? It affirms why we long for wholesome families and want to build wholesome families. 
It affirms why we long for meaningful friendships and want to build meaningful friendships. It affirms our need to be loved and to give love to other people. These things matter because these things don't end. Those relationships that we cherish now don't need to end and can be had more fully. Those relationships we yearn for but don't presently have will be experienced perfectly. The hope of the empty tomb is beautiful because it's personal. But thirdly, the hope of the empty tomb is beautiful because it is certain. See, what, what good is it, friends, if, if the beauty of the empty tomb, if, if, if um, the, the tomb is uh, hope and beautiful hope, but we're unsure that that's even our future? What's the point if we don't even know that that's our future anyway? It doesn't matter if it's beautiful or not. It's not we don't know. We can't be sure. I think Jesus tells the disciples right at the end of Luke 24 um, a bit of a hint of the answer of, as to why they can be certain and therefore how we can be certain as well. Have a look. We're going to look just from verses 46. We'll read 46 through to 48. Um, verses 46. Jesus told them this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. See, from these three verses, what do we see as the role of Jesus and what do we see as the role of the disciples? Jesus is the one who does everything. That's his role. He's the one who suffers. He's the one who dies. And by dying, he's the one who takes the consequences of mankind for ruining relationship with God. He is the one who rose from the dead on the third day, and he is the one who tells the world the consequences of death has been defeated. He tells the world that personal relationship with God could be had again, and it's all accomplished because of him. And what's the role of the disciples? If that's Jesus' role, what's their role? Well, their role is to see. They're witnesses who've seen everything. Their role is to tell others. They're preachers and reclaimers of these things. See, in other words, the disciples, they're passive. They respond at best. See, friends, Jesus gifted this future to the disciples. The disciples could be certain that the resurrection was their future because Jesus was the one who did everything to get it. It's his tomb that's empty. Jesus was the one who gifted this future to them. And the same is true for us. We can be sure that this is our future, not by anything we do or anything that we somehow add. We can be completely certain that this is our future because Jesus' tomb is empty and he has given this future to us if we, like the disciples, believe and accept this gift. In a way, Jesus' resurrection is a bit like a, bit like a store receipt you hold on to after someone's given you a gift. See, the receipt, by holding on to it, tells everybody that the item is yours. Jesus' resurrection tells you that the gift of your future with him is yours. See, friends, it's remarkable that in every way, all we need to do is look back. Look back at that first resurrection to know what our futures are guaranteed to be if we, like the disciples, believe and accept it to be true. The hope of the empty tomb is certain. It's ours because it was gifted to us. What assurance to know that this future can't be taken away. So as I invite the band to come up, 
as I invite the band to come up, the hope of the empty tomb is stronger, I want to say, and more functional than any hope that we have offered to us. It's beyond our world. It's believable. It's beautiful. See, those who are baptized and those who are confirmed today want to publicly declare to you and me that this is their hope. And they want to share it with you. Friends, the hope of the empty tomb is a hope that gives us the resource to deal with grief. It gives us profound reason to do good and promote life because death isn't the end. It's a hope that values love and relationship with each other and with God because they don't end. It's a hope we can be absolutely certain of because it is given as a gift and not earned. Don't you wish for an unshakable hope like that? If any of what we've, anything of what we've looked at today intrigues you, if any of it appeals to you, can I invite you to explore the hope that comes from the empty tomb of Jesus? Happy Easter.